Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. You are listening to Gangland Wire, hosted by former Kansas City Police Intelligence Unit Detective Gary Jenkins. Welcome, all you wiretappers out there. I'm back here in the Gangland Wire studio. I have on the phone uh, a lot of you guys from Chicago will recognize this name, the shark, Joe Lopez. Joe, welcome. Good afternoon, everybody. Hope everybody's doing good during this crisis and staying safe and staying secure and hope that all of the families are doing well. I, I do, too, and, and I know uh, it's been a pain. But I've been, what I've been doing, Joe, I've been recording extra podcasts and putting them out. It's a little bit. It's the least I can do, uh, put some a little extra entertainment out. So, uh, Hey, the show must go on, Gary. You know yeah, that. Yeah, it, it must. It must. You know that, too. You know a little sure bit about I show, do. show business, don't you? <laughs> I got a stamp card, of course. <laughs> I heard that. Interesting. So, Joe, you're a, you're a pretty well-known criminal lawyer up there in Chicago. I got on to you from the uh, Chicago Outfit Facebook sites. You're always commenting on there and stirring people up or telling them, telling them how, how things really happened rather than the, the myths and rumors that often get propagated on uh uh, in the different social media platforms. Uh, let's go back and, and see where you came from. Now, you're a, an a original Chicago citizen. Is that correct? Born here on this concrete. That's what I thought. So where did you go to high school, Joe? I went to high school in the suburbs at Addison Trail. Um, in my neighborhood, they tore everything down to build U of I, so everybody scattered. Interesting. Where did you, you end up going to law school? I went to law school at Chicago Kent, which is part of IIT, Illinois Institute of Technology. What were some of your early, did you go right into criminal law? You know, it's funny, I, I did not, Gary. I, when I was young in law school, I worked for a lawyer, and he had a corner office, and he had a Porsche, and he partied on Rush Street all the time, and he was a divorce lawyer, and I wanted to be a divorce lawyer. That was when I, my goal in law school, was to become a divorce lawyer with a corner office and my own Porsche. But it didn't turn out that way because what happened was, and I kind of wanted to stay away from all of this because I'd been around it my entire life and I wanted to go kind of in a different direction. You understand? Yep. And I didn't really want to do it. I had friends who were doing it and, you know, they wanted me to come aboard and they wanted me to do it because I could speak Spanish. And at that time, we had the, the Cali cartel had just come to town and there were Colombians everywhere. 
uh, there were Mexicans or Herreras were everywhere, and there was all kinds of drugs coming into the city. It was a cocaine explosion. This is 1983-84, long time ago. And what happened uh, was my first year of practicing law, I remember I opened my office. I gave a guy an IBM Selectric typewriter my dad gave me as my first month rent, and I started my, my divorce practice. I had a couple of clients that he gave to me. The other attorney did, and I started on this divorce venture. And then all of a sudden, we had the Greylord investigation came to town. Yeah. It, was, it was exposed that all these lawyers were going to get indicted, and all these grand jury subpoenas went out. Somebody says to me, can you take this case in the federal building, the Kilo, the preliminary hearing case, the Colombian yeah. woman? I guess I can handle it. I mean, I've seen enough trials at the Daily Center and at 26th Street and the federal building while I was in law school. So I figured I could handle this hearing. And I worked hard on, on my questions and I spent time on it. And I went to the federal building and I had a finding of no probable cause. Oh, wow. And I went back to the office and told the attorney, and he had a look of amazement on him. I bet. <laughs> and, I, and then I thought, you know what? When I was in law school, we did a – I had Judge Warren Wilson, very well-known professor and judge here in Chicago. His brother, Dean Wilson, actually went to jail in the Greylord investigation. Dean Wilson was my trial advocacy teacher, and I remember that we did this trial. It was a criminal case. And it had something to do with a brain injury. And I remember I, I, it was a mock trial, but I had a real witness. I had a real doctor, and the other side had a real doctor. We put a lot of time into this case. We presented it to a mock jury, mm -hmm. and it was a hung jury. The professor said that had never happened in the history of anybody teaching this class. <laughs> so in the guy that I tried against, it was, became my first, my was my best man at my last wedding, and he became a big personal injury, very successful lawyer in, in Chicago. Eventually, he had a little issue. He went to federal prison for a while, uh, for a year. He came out. He got his law license back. Now he's living in Nevada. But he never forgave me for that because he was an ex-Chicago staying soccer player, and I had gone really? to UIC with him. When I came back from this hearing, I thought to myself, you know, I, that should have been a signal way back then to go into criminal law because he got, obviously got a little knack for it. Yeah, because I've done things that weren't supposed to happen. I'm not tooting my own horn. I'm just saying what happened. I don't know how I did it, but it, I did it. From that point on, I then I got another case from from another well-known lawyer who was indicted. He wanted me to represent his son in the federal building. I got sworn into the federal building, and I got I was in front of the grand jury within three weeks on a case. I got subpoenaed to the grand jury, and and at that time, that's when I I had just met a lawyer by the name of Lou Carbonaro. And Lou was a very famous Chicago lawyer in, in, in the outfit circles. He represented many, many guys. He was Angelo LaPietra's lawyer and many others. We met each other on a, on, on a murder case that I had, and he had the co-defendant, and Mario Rinoni's brother, Louis Rinoni, and it was a murder. Mm -hmm. I asked Lou, can you help me out? And that's, you know, Lou brought me in there. We took the Fifth Amendment, and everything went away. But, you know, it was 1985. It was scary, and then I kind of started, you know, getting into it. And then, you know, I got a couple of guys that I knew over in Bridgeport and Taylor Street. Can you do this? Help me in this and, you know, do that. And Lou was giving me a little bit of stuff. And, you know, and I started getting clients that were accused of being an organized crime as well as all of my colleague cartel guys. I mean, they used to call me the in-house counsel for the colleague cartel over here. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> I had a lot of them. 
And uh, that's kind of like how I got into the business. It was kind of like I kind of like stumbled into it, you know, without any clear game plan, so to speak. It wasn't what I thought I was going to wind up doing. But, you know, one thing I've learned during this, this COVID crisis is that I'm never going to stop. Yeah. I miss it. I really <laughs> miss it. Bad. Your court's been shut down? On Zoom, we have hearings, but, you know, it's hard to argue from your dining room table to a screen. Yeah, I can so imagine. It, it loses all the flavor, but, you know, eventually we're going to be back. But I've been doing this since 1984, so I've got a lot of years in. And I've been practicing right. in federal buildings since 1985, so i got a lot of years in there. Uh, back in the 80s, I used to travel a lot, the 80s and especially the early 90s. When, you know, when NASA opened up the border for Mexico, all mm-hmm. the coke started coming through the border because the coke used to come up the eastern seaboard mostly. really didn't come up through Mexico at the time. Hey, some boats would run from Veracruz to, to, to New Orleans and Tampico, and they might have a little bit of smuggling. But really when NASA happened, what happened was the Colombians went into partnership with the Mexicans. And this is kind of like on Narcos. This is kind of a backstory on Narcos for you Narco fans out there. Yeah. Um, they used to call Guadalajara the trampoline. And they called it the trampoline because the coke would land there and, and, and bounce right out of there because the Colombians went into business with the Mexicans. We'll bring the dope to you. You bring it to the United States. So that's kind of like how the transition went of Colombians being mostly suppliers as opposed to traffickers. I mean, they still traffic up the eastern seaboard. They still traffic out in Europe. There's no question about that. But the majority of the stuff came through the borders in trucks. I mean, we're not talking about people with backpacks running over a wall. That's a small deal. These guys are organized. They got tunnels. They got planes. They got cars. They got got all kinds of stuff. So back in the 90s, I mean, I I flew from coast to coast and border to border. All these, I've been to some really weird places, some really small places. And I've been in places where people looked at me like I was an alien because I had a (laughs) ponytail and a black Armani suit and pointy shoes on and gold (laughs) Rolex and the whole nine yards. I mean, I looked like out of central casting for Miami Vice back in the day when I had my ponytail and everything. Really? (laughs) And we can talk about that later. We'll talk about Sam Carlisi and that ponytail later on in in the podcast because because of Sam, I had to cut it off. And we can talk about that later. Okay. So that's kind of like the backstory that that, that I have. and, And I've done a lot of you know, a lot of drug cases and I've done a lot of murder cases and I've done a lot of outfit cases. So I've been doing it a long time. I enjoy doing it. Um, I try to help people as much as I can. Uh, I feel that my job really is to get people back home to their families. It's more important sometimes to get somebody out home than than anything else because, you know, being locked up in jail is a bad thing and you know there's a lot of good people to do bad things and they have good families that want him to come home and you know the, sometimes i feel like you know my job is just to get to, to to minimize the blow so you can get back to their houses and get back to their families yeah. it's important it's important that that, that it happened and that's how i kind of like see myself in, in 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 the system is trying to get people home i want to get people home and win cases but first yeah. i want to get them home it's more important to get them home than it is to win sometimes yeah in my it, opinion here, here's what i've seen a lot of especially in that federal system and and things that that a guy like you can do a guy may be dead wrong and there may be all kinds of evidence but they'll overcharge them they'll 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 layer those charges on like crazy and 
you know, you got to have a good lawyer that'll sit there and start knocking those other charges off. Otherwise, uh, you'll be in uh, with these draconian sentences over the last 20 years uh, since the 80s. Why, guy be in jail forever over, you know, really wasn't that big a deal what he was doing, but uh, they make it look like it was. And then a guy like you can can start knocking off all those extra charges and get down to, to one charge that you can make some kind of a decent deal over. Yeah, and you know the, the problem with the federal building is 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 you know it's got a ninety eight or ninety nine percent win rate. Yeah. Uh, and you know a lot of times you go in there and you're forced to plead guilty and you got to mitigate the crap out of it. You know my wife does very good over there. I mean she had a guy with seven kilos got thirty months. I mean no cooperation, no snitching. It, wow. It's just, <laughs> it's, you know it's just that that was the last case and you know sometimes we get in these cases. We just had one not too long ago where the it was a it was a big sentence, but we cut eighty months off the sentence. I mean, eighty months is a long time. That is, and uh, and, and 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 you know that's kind of how it is. You know, like we tell people sometimes with the federal system is it's kind of like cancer. You can beat it. You know, in the beginning you might be able to motion it, beat a little bit of it, but in the end it winds up taking you. And it's you yeah. know it's, it's unfortunate. I always tell clients this. Uh, you know, the federal system is so heartless that they put Martha Stewart in jail and she makes cookies. Yeah. And that's all you need to know about the federal system. <laughs> I'll tell you what, I, I used to work a lot of cases with the FBI and, and DEA too, and, and especially FBI. I used to look at these, watch these guys and help them surveil them and, and you know, get informants that know a little bit here and a little bit there. And I used to think, you know, if they only knew the weight of what's coming down on them, I mean, there'll be, you know, like 50 detectives and and uh, agents working on one guy and uh, and the periphery things and and they it's like they have no idea the the weight of what's going to come down on them with unlimited budget uh, unlimited resources and, and you know but they'll do it anyhow <laughs> and you're right it is unlimited yeah it's it's amazing it, it is truly amazing the the power that the federal government has when they take out after somebody it's just uh, you know, it, it's terrifying, really, if you think about it. Just hope it's always used for the correct purposes. Well, the last thing that that that, that I that I saw that happened to the DEA when it came to money was not was when we had the budget crisis. Remember? Yeah. I had agents tell me they couldn't get by money. <laughs> I thought that was kind of funny. Really, that is funny. Have you run into this? We used to, we worked, like I said, we worked with all these different agencies and guys would start picking targets because of the things that they had. They could, they wanted to seize their car or, or if they had some kind of fancy car or uh, an, an extra big house with a swimming pool or something. And, and they would start choosing targets to go after because of the, uh, the things that they had so that they could get through civil forfeiture. Do you run into much of that? Not as I mean they 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 forfeit all the time. Yeah, it, it's it's I'm so used to it. I mean I I can remember I testified in front of the the Illinois uh, Senate subcommittee many many years ago uh, on forfeiture, and I was actually on a committee that helped write rewrite the old forfeiture from the 80s to post eight eight it was like 89 or 90, and you learn that a lot of these municipalities, I mean, this money that comes out of, 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 of these seizures gets shared with many different agencies. And there's an incentive for them to, to seize. I mean, the Supreme Court stopped it not too long ago, but back in, back in the day, it was awful. 
Yeah, it was. You'd be on an airplane something. with money, and they would take it from you, even no matter who you were. I've seen them take houses from people that you know had had a family and everything living there, and and uh, you know they just take the house, so the family was totally out. It was, uh, yeah, it was. Uh, there was a lot of overreach with that. I'd heard that they'd pulled back quite a little bit on that. So, uh, you know, and, and you're right about the, you came in this business at the right time, uh, that explosion of cocaine coming up from south of the border. This I-35 that comes up from uh, Laredo straight north to uh, Kansas City, non-north, that was, a, that was a cocaine highway one way and the money highway the other way. <laughs> well, you don't yeah. go all the way to Honduras. Oh, yeah, it does, doesn't it? <laughs> 35 was the main smuggler. Zetas controlled the whole thing. Yeah. Back in the day. That was all Zeta Highway. And, and yeah, the Zetas paid off everybody in Texas, too. I mean, they owned 35. That was their highway. And, and it became a, a, a big thing. There was even a Netflix Mexican story about it called Route 35. It's oh, about, really? I didn't know that. It's about two, two cocaine, sort of like the Sopranos, two cocaine families that mix up together. It's in oh. Spanish, and, you know, it's, it's a caracol production it's about a million dollars they spend on every production i mean it's really well done and it's about snitching because rule 35 route 35 you get rule 35 is to reduce your sentence for snitching plus you got route 35 which is your smuggling route so that's what the name of the show is kind of patterned after it's route 35 on netflix you say it is interesting folks you have to look that one up i'm going to I, lo- I love those uh, things about the, the like narcos and there's one zero 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 out there. It, the, the thing about narcotics, it, it lends itself to organization. It makes for a much more interesting story. It, you know, you've got all these different uh, division of labor and different people involved, and have to put these parts together. That I love those stories like that. We can talk about one of those stories and organized crime whenever you're ready. I can tell you one. All right, let's do it. All right, so. Back in the late 80s, there was a guy by the name of Victor Plesha I represented. Victor Plesha, Frank Bonavolante, Camillo Grossi, I forgot the other defendant, four of them. Well, what they were doing in the late 80s is they were taking, they were all part of what they alleged to be the Cicero crew back in the day. Mm-hmm. And they alleged that they were taking the gambling proceeds, right? Mm-hmm. driving to Miami, filling up the trunk, and coming back. And they, mm. did that for, they did that for a number of years before they got caught, and they, got, they actually got caught on a gambling wire that kind of, like, popped up where, you know, back then they saw the, the, the outfit guys don't do drugs, they don't touch drugs, they don't touch drugs. Well, not only were they selling drugs, they were doing drugs. We could hear them snorting cocaine on the... On, on the on the wire. <laughs> yeah. So, so they, indi- they indicted Victor. They, in- they indicted Frank Bonavolante. Um, they indicted the, the Grossi. And, you know, it was an organized crime case with, with, with the cocaine attached to it. But one of the things that I really liked about Victor was he's, is his American Express at the Fountain Blue for like three days was like $15,000. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> so, they, you know what? They were having fun in Florida. Yeah, they were, they were making a lot of money. They were having fun in Florida. They were bringing the stuff back up here. The allegations were it was going, you know, all, the money was going all the way to the top, and everybody was 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 not paying attention to where it was coming from. You know, yeah. 
So that was kind of like everybody, we're not into it, but they're into it. Um, yeah, yeah. But that case, it, it was an interesting case. It, it went to trial. The case actually went to trial because nobody ever really pleads guilty. And during the trial, I remember that my client, Victor Plesha, there was a, an informant that wasn't called, so we couldn't get into how dirty he was. And I think they paid him forty grand or something like that. Mm-hmm. And it was an interesting case because it was a double jury. It was one of the first times in the federal building that we had a double jury. And I can't remember the year of it. I remember I had my blue Corvette, and it was a 1988. So it was somewhere between 88 and 90. So by double jury, explain that double jury thing. I'm not familiar with that. We had two juries, and I can't remember. We raised some kind of conflict where we tried to sever the case, and the judge said, I'll just give you two juries. So I think mm-hmm. Grossi had his own jury, and we had our own jury. So we had. Oh, oh, oh I see. For different defendants, you're trying you're, so you can present all your evidence at the same time. But then, for one defendant, have one jury, another defendant have the other jury. Interesting. That's that's correct, and and huh. and, and that 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 is correct. And I remember, we it, we were set up in the in the court. We had one jury in one jury box, and then we had the other jury. I'm trying to remember how it was configured. It was in Judge Norgel's courtroom. I know that we were in the center. But it was really the first time they ever did a double jury in, in federal court. It was very, it was a very unique thing mm. at the time to have this occur like this. But we had this double jury, and I remember our table, the jury was behind us. So during my closing argument, I guess Victor and I didn't see this because I do my closing argument. Held up a sign to the juror that said the informant is this and that, and he got paid this and that. And so I'm doing my closing argument, and I'm not really paying attention. All of a sudden, the judge halts the proceedings. What's that sign? What's that sign? <laughs> Are you kidding me? <laughs> I'm not kidding you. And everybody looks at Victor, and he's got the sign in his hand, right? Yeah. Well, let me see that sign. And I'm back, at, it said whatever. U.S. attorneys going crazy. Just I going bet. absolutely bonkers. Just having a fit about it. I'm trying not to laugh, right, and act serious. Because I think it's great. I think it was, yeah. I, I think it was funny. You know, he, he got sick. You know, he was tired of it. So that's how he responded. Yeah. And I remember the judge telling me, Mr. Lopez, I'm going to find your client in contempt, and you have, and I want you to file an, a rule to show cause against your client. <laughs> and I looked at him. I said, Judge, I'm not filing anything. What? I don't think you can do that ethically. I said, I'm, I said that the process, I said, I'm not the process. I'm not filing anything. I'm not doing really? anything against my client, and you can't order me to do so. Oh he, went, oh, he goes, oh, man, he was screaming. He <laughs> was coming out of his ears, and I think finally the process is judge. I think we have to do it, but they remember. That was the highlight of the trial. They, they were found guilty. Victor was given 25 years in that case for freaking, just for having a gun and, and cocaine. It was ridiculous. Hmm. Ridiculous! A ridiculous time, just absolutely ridiculous. And well, Victor was kind of violent. They, you know, they brought in all this stuff. It's something about how he smashed an ashtray over some guy's head in the restaurant. You know, yeah. he just liked to fight. He was just a, he was a tough guy. He yeah. was a good guy though. He's a really good guy. I really liked him. And, and Frankie Bonavolante, he was a super super dude. In fact, the funny thing about that is I broke my foot in the middle of the trial in, a, in one of my construction projects. I fell I fell on a construction project. So I had this giant cast on my leg, and of course I'm known for pink, so I made him make it pink. <laughs> but I used to get a ride either from Kevin Bolger, and, and everybody knew this. Either Kevin Bolger would pick me up, who was who was a coach who had the coat who represented Grossi, or Frank Bonavolante would pick me up and pick me up and drive me to the courthouse every day. So I got to know Frankie a, a, a lot. He was a real gentleman. Every time someone cut him off, he would not beep his horn. He wouldn't. And this guy was a vicious character. 
Mm-hmm. He looked like a good guy, you know, nice. But he, it, deep down inside, he was vicious like Victor. But God, you know, when it came to dealing with the public, he didn't exhibit any sign whatsoever. This this man was, he was as humble as as humble could be. He was just a mm-hmm. humbling guy, a really good guy. He actually died inside the joint. It was really a shame. <laughs> interesting. That's an interesting case. It's funny because one of the things that happened during that case is we happened to be in the restaurant the same night they did these tapes that, that they did they had some uh, intercepts over Bertucci's corner. We were on twenty fourth by Union over there. I was actually in there that night when the Victor and all the informant was and I knew Victor. We were sitting at a different table, it was like a different group of people. And I remember all the people sitting there and talking and, and I remember seeing one guy when I left gave me a really weird stare and it turned out to be a DE agent who knew who I was, but I wasn't connected to the case. I was just happened to be there. I think he freaked that I saw him and I would recognize him and tell somebody, but I didn't recognize him at the time. I just couldn't figure out who he was then I figured out later on. Yeah. Here's what here's what happens with policemen, and I've I've seen myself do this. Is you see a lawyer, you're, you're not really you know. After I became a lawyer, I now understand the relationship, but you don't really know the relationship, whether you're an agent or a, or a policeman, whatever. You don't really understand the relationship between lawyers and clients. No. And so you just keep wanting to go down that path that oh, they must be part of it. They must be part of it. They must be part of it. How could they not be part of it? And and it's hard to explain. You can't. I can't explain it to my friends. Uh, they just look at me like I'm an idiot or something. If I try to explain it, that you're you're not part of it. You're their lawyer. There's a difference. Now you know. Back in the '80s, the lawyers were the targets. Subpoenas for fees, and you know, like we were the bad guys. Yeah. It, it was ridiculous in the '80s. It really was. The lawyers were all the targets. I mean, some of them were doing some shitty things. Some of them were, were involved. I know lawyers were involved with their clients. Give their clients fifty grand to get a hundred back. I mean, I that that you, now you're not a lawyer anymore. You just yeah. lost the lawyer. There is a line you cannot cross. And I can tell you one thing: I have met some of the top dogs in the Chicago outfit that people will never met, know or never suspect. I have never had heard one guy say one thing about anything inappropriate in front of me. Yeah. Ever. Never discussed a damn thing in front of me. I've been out to dinner with many guys. I've been to picnics with people. I've been to weddings. I've sat at tables. Our clients don't tell us their business. No. They're not idiots. <laughs> it's not my business. I remember one time Eddie Jensen told me a story years ago when they killed Willie Dauber. Um, there was allegations that they found out that Dauber was going to court because one of the outfit guys happened to be in Eddie's office and saw the diary and saw the day of court the day the guy got killed. So there was a lot of hard feelings about what had happened. Yeah. And Eddie made a beef. He made a <laughs> beef to the clients about it. And I'll never forget, he told me Butchie Petroselli came to his office and said, Eddie, you are never to ask a question again ever. It's none <laughs> of your fucking business. And you know what? But she was right. Yeah. None of our business. <laughs> our clients, whatever they do, when they come around us, they don't tell us their secrets. We don't know what they're doing. I don't ask them, hey, what about this? What about this? Inappropriate. It's yeah. inappropriate. You don't do that. When people say, well, they could be part of it, well, really, maybe on the outside because we're down at Rush Street eating and having drinks and laughing and giggling, it might look that way. But in reality, they're clients, they're friends, and we're not talking about any of that. We never talk about cases, ever. You know, unless we're in the office. All right, Joe, this has been great. Thanks a lot. Okay, talk to you. Thanks a lot. You're welcome. Bye.
Well, that was Joseph the Shark Lopez, and a lot of you mob fans from Chicago will know about him. He comments quite often on the different Chicago outfit Facebook interest pages, and uh, he was a really interesting interview. Uh, I'm going to get him back on. We talked. He was uh, he represented uh, Frank Calabrese Sr. in the Family Secrets trial. So I was not really prepared. Uh, need to brush up on that Family Secrets case and. And then we'll get him back on. He agreed he'd come back on and and do that. So uh, I really I'm glad I was able to get in touch with him and and get him to spare me some time because uh, you know how these real active lawyers are. They can barely squeeze out five minutes between running from one court to the other. Joe, I appreciate it. Oh, I, I looked him up on uh, Chicago PD on that show. Chicago PD. He is a technical advisor and he was in a few episodes he told me and I it was in the third season it was about the fifth or the sixth when he paid, played a lawyer he didn't, didn't have a very big part right then uh, I think he had a female client I don't even remember what the story was now but so if you're uh, familiar with Chicago PD you'll be able to see the shark in there and remember if you're a veteran and you believe you have problems that might be from PTSD connected to your service time Call your local vet center or the local VA hospital, or they have a national hotline, 1-800-273-8255, and press 1 if you are a vet. You can also go to their website, www.ptsd.va.gov. This site contains a lot of resources. Also, I have the uh, donation button on my shop page. I also have my two movies up for rent for $1.99, Brothers Against Brothers and Gangland Wire. Uh, I have my book, Leaving Vegas, How FBI Wiretaps Ended Mom Domination of Las Vegas Casinos. So that's about all I got to sell, and, and that's about all I got. So I look forward to uh, getting Joe Lopez back on. And we're kind of pulling out of this COVID thing. I recorded this kind of early on in it, and I'm finally getting around to editing it and getting it put up. So stay well out there. Good evening, folks. Music provided by our good friend and super fan from Portland, Oregon, Casey McBride. Thanks, Casey.